Bibles. It's a 10-week series, and we're on week three of 10. We'll go through this all the way to the very first week of September before um, the fall launcher. We kind of launch with the school year as far as what it looks like for us to be um, uh, ministering and, and effectively trying to get things done here. So that'll be our, our fall launch then, but we'll be going through the parables all summer long. And uh, I'm sure that Pastor Barry gave you a precursor of what the parables were all about. I saw at the back there, he had left um, printed off some pages there that talked about all the different parables and, and the sections that they belong to and them in chronological order or things, something like that. Uh, absolutely amazing uh, tool for you to dig into the different parables because sometimes they can be confusing. You know, sometimes we find ourselves like the disciples. If you've read through any of the Gospels, uh, the the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you, uh, you hear the disciples, the followers of Jesus, sometimes going like scratching their head and, and saying to Jesus after he, he shared one of his stories, going like, hey, Jesus, what the heck did you mean when you told that story? They didn't even understand it. So we can be in good company considering they were the early fathers of our faith when uh, they didn't have a clue what Jesus was saying half the time. Which leaves us the, uh, the joy of discovering what he meant together. And so the, the, well, the one we're going to look at today, at a quick glance, it seems like this parable is about two things. That some ministers either love or hate to talk about. Money and hell. Oh, what a great return from holidays. That's, <laughs> that's the one I get to talk about. The one that makes people shudder when they hear a, pa- a pastor talking about it. Usually sounds like them asking for your money or you're going to hell, right? And so that is not going to happen today. But I want you to hear what uh, the parable is about, and I think we're going to uh, have a good time. So let's dive in. You can read along. I encourage you, bring your Bibles to church, whether it's uh, a paper Bible, a, a physical one, or you're following on your phone. Either way, bring your Bible with you. We do have it on the screens here, but it's a little bit easier for you to track and uh, take notes or highlight things if you have your own Bible that you're following along with us. Usually, uh, we'll try to explain which version we're reading from uh, so you can understand this main passage we'll be reading from the NIV, New International Version. All right, so let's dive into our scripture that we're going to be looking at today. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was torment, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, 
nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the, and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. God, I just pray that as we look at this parable that you told, I pray that you will help us uh, understand its context, understand the heart behind what you were trying to reveal about who you are, about the kingdom of God, and about uh, the lives that we are to live. May we be able to look at your word and understand it and apply it to our lives today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if we look at the context of this parable, what's going on, why Luke, who's the author, writes this, we can potentially get a better understanding for us today. When reading the Bible, it is wise for us to start off thinking like this. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? What would this have meant for them? And then what, imp or what impact would it have on their lives? And then what implication does that have for me today? All right? So when you're going through reading Scripture, that's a general idea of what you should look at or how you should read Scripture. Who's talking? Who is he talking to? Why is he saying to them what he's saying? What did it mean for them? And then how can I take a lesson from that? How does it apply to my life? All right. In this case, if you scroll up in your Bible, if you're on a digital one, or if you turn a few pages back or look up a few paragraphs, you'll find that we'll see Jesus was talking to both his disciples, who are people who are following him to learn faith as he taught it, and he was talking also to Pharisees. And they were spiritual, cultural leaders of the day who thought they were doing the same thing as Jesus, but with a different focus. A focus that was actually leading people away from God. And from this, we can surmise that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to live while offering correction and truth to the Pharisees if they would hear it. And it starts with a snapshot of two people, the rich man and Lazarus. One is in fine linen, which would be, the fine linen would be your, your undergarments of the day. And these were the best undergarments that you could get in all of the land. They were probably imported from somewhere else of really fine material. And he's wearing purple clothes. And the purple clothes, that was a symbol of royalty. So basically, this rich man is not a, a king or a prince, but he's, he's so rich and he thinks so highly of himself that he's dressing up like one. That he is, he's the Bill Gates, he's the Elon Musk, he's the whoever you want to think of of, our, of the time. He's somebody who that's so rich that money is nothing to them. We can think of, you know what, every now and then we're going to go out to a special restaurant and, and splurge on a nice steak or whatever you think is really fancy. Maybe you like going out for sushi and you, you want to get all the sushi, sushi you could imagine. And you know the bill's going to be high, right? And so you know that you only go every now and then. 
You don't go all the time because you can't afford to. This man, though, was eating luxuriously every single meal. Every meal was a gourmet-prepared meal for him. So much so that a cultural thing in the day would be they didn't use napkins. They didn't, like, you know, they weren't taking trees and cutting them down and taking the pulp and mashing it together and bleaching it and turning it into a napkin. They weren't using cloth as napkins because cloth, you know, clothing was still something that was very valuable at the time. What they would use is bread as a napkin. So they would take chunks of bread, slices of bread, and that's what they would clean things off with, wipe things down, and then they would toss it on the ground. And so Lazarus is sitting there hoping to get the crumbs, the bread that is covered in whatever he was eating, that he was using as a napkin and throwing away. That's what Lazarus was hoping to get. That was his dining experience compared to the gourmet experience that the rich man has. Lazarus is a beggar whose dressing is actually open sores that a dog would lick. And not a pet, not my, my dog. I have a dog named Barkley or, or anything like that. That's stray dogs that are just wandering the streets would come up and lick. You can see the vast difference between these two realities that these men live in. Life could not be more different. Maybe we can look at somebody around us. We can look at our situation, somebody else's situation, and we think we can see a divergent path that that we're on, the haves and the have-nots. That's the way the situation was. One seemed blessed with health and wealth. The other cursed with poverty and sickness. If you're familiar with the story of Job in the Old Testament of the Bible, a man who had great wealth but then had the enemy attack him and and take away everything that was good in his life, his wealth and his health. And we can see that story being played out in these two men and we can then often think, you know, wow, health and, and wealth and doing well, that must be a blessing from God and a curse would be the sickness and the poverty. And that's how we view things. God favoring one versus God forgetting the other. But then a second snapshot follows. And this one, they both have died. Lazarus dies. And what happens? Angels attend to him. There's no human funeral for him. The only guests are those that will escort him to Abraham's side. Often called, you may have heard it said, Abraham's bosom or a place of peace and rest for him. He has received what his name actually means, God helps. What the early listener of the story would also know is that Lazarus is a nickname or a derivative of the name Eleazar. And if you're familiar with your Bible stories, you'd know that Eleazar was an aid or a helper to Abraham when he was alive on earth. So the reader, the Pharisees especially, would know this connection. They would know that the only, this is the only parable where Jesus names somebody. Every other parable, they're nameless people. It was a rich man. It was a person who did this or that. A farmer sowed his seeds. This is the only person that's named. His name has significance. There's a reason why he, he names him that. Lazarus, God helps. 
Eleazar, the, the person who was a helper to Abraham, now again at Abraham's side. To the listener in that audience, hearing that, it would mean something and it would poke at them as far as the meaning of what Jesus was trying to get at. Now, when the rich man dies, he's buried. What does that mean? It means that there were certainly people there to attend his funeral. Most likely, there were mourners. And often, as the case in that time frame, they would actually pay people to mourn at funerals. People who would walk ahead as they carried the body, and they would be paid to cry and wail really loudly so that everybody knew that there was a, a funeral happening. And this is probably what was happening for this man as he went to his grave. Meanwhile, his brothers probably were lined up looking to get a part of his vast wealth, vulturing over his estate. He has no angelic contendies. What does he find himself? Not in Abraham's side, but in Hades, a place of torment. Now, we look at this and we go, a quick judgment of that would be wealth is evil, or at best it's its own reward, and that poverty is something that God wants us to suffer through. Have a lot now and a little later, or a little now and lots later. This, though, would be a mistake to think this is the whole meaning of the parable. Again, Jesus is teaching his disciples and correcting Pharisees. Earlier in the address, Jesus had an interaction with those same people, with those listening, and he said this in Luke 16, 13 to 15. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are, the only, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. There's more going on than we can th- see in this. We know nothing of their declared faith. We don't know what Lazarus or the rich man, what their faith journeys look like. We aren't told this in the parable. So we're left to surmise in some way that they both thought that they were in some type of relationship with God. So it must be deeper than just wealth and poverty, but it also must speak to that. The rich man in his torment, and he looks up, and in his simple, this simple version of the story, it's, it's not supposed to be a, a detailed articulation of what apocalyptic life looks like, life after death. This is not supposed to be a definitive version. This is just a a story he's telling to highlight something. He sees Abraham, the man that all of Israel in the Middle East would call their father, who they descended from. More so in their region, Abraham, being the father of their faith, whoever called him father, it was believed that he then would grant them status in faith. If Abraham was their father in faith, then they had the faith of their father, meaning they were a part of that religion, that faith system. Much like today, we may hear somebody say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian, or I'm an Anglican, I'm Catholic, oh, I'm Pentecostal. Meanwhile, 
They barely darken the door of a church or live their lives in a way that looks like God would want us to live. But their grandparents did. So they have the faith of their grandparents. Or maybe they were christened in church as a child, as a baby. They had water sprinkled on their head and they think, that, that buys me in to the community of faith. But faith, that's not how it works. Just like the rich man had a rude awakening, we cannot look at our lives and think that's going to be okay. That's going to be enough. Now there begins a dialogue between them. The rich man, seeing Lazarus with Abraham, asks for Lazarus. Stop for a minute and think. This rich man knew Lazarus by name. He sat outside his gate. He begged. He was looking for just the scraps of food off of the rich man's table. He knew him. It wasn't somebody that was unknown in the community. It wasn't somebody from the other side of town that he never met. He knew him by name. He asked for him to come and and, uh, put a drop of water on his tongue to ease his agony. Just like a scrap of food off the table. The roles have been reversed. And he still thinks that he should be served. He knew Lazarus and ignored him on earth, but he expects Lazarus to come now and drip water into his mouth. But Abraham calls him. He calls the man, my son. Why does he do that? He acknowledges that he was a part of the Israeli nation, that he was Jewish. That was his his genetic lineage, but that wasn't enough. He was born into that. Nothing could change that. But there was another lineage that he needed. He needed to be born again. There was a gate that had separated that rich man and Lazarus. It was used to keep out the poor, the needy, those that we dare not look in the eye because it would trigger moral obligation to do something. To guard against that, he kept the unwanted outside of that wall. Now, there's a new barrier. A chasm that can't be crossed either way. While earthly, on earth, that wall was passable. Those gates could have swung wide open. People could have come in and dined with him. But he had the doors shut. Now, now there he is. And the finality of this moment sees this chasm echoing for all of eternity. Realizing that there was nothing that could be done for him. He now has a heart for those he knows. His five brothers are headed for the same fate as him. They too have seen their faith fall to the God, money, wealth. Send Lazarus to them, he says. They'll believe if that old beggar comes back from the dead and warns them of their impending doom. Abraham, though, he seems unfazed telling him that they have scriptures, they have Moses, they have the prophets that can awaken them to the truth and to repentance. Scriptures that they know about. They know of their father, Abraham. No, Father Abraham, he declares. The rich man, he's no longer just asking. He's demanding that Father Abraham do something about this. He's still lost in his ways towards power. 
not looking for his brothers to find who is behind those scriptures, but just the rewards of the scripture. Jesus closes the parable with this statement. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The irony of this moment, if we were to read John's gospel, in the 11th chapter, Jesus would bring back to life a friend whose name is Lazarus. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. And we read that they, in the Bible, they were followers and dear friends of Jesus. Yet, when the Pharisees heard that Lazarus, who they knew was dead, had been brought back to life, listen to their response. John 11. One of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, meaning the other priests and Pharisees, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He was thinking that Jesus was going to upset a rebellion against Rome, who was the oppressor of the day, and that it would affect everybody in Israel if Jesus rose up as some Messiah-like figure that got all the people up in arms. That's what his thought was. But he did not say this of his, on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Listen to what they did. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What an irony, huh? Of a story of a guy named Lazarus who he says, it doesn't matter if Lazarus rises from the dead. They won't believe him. They won't change their mind. And then it happens in reality. Those Pharisees listening to Jesus seeing Jesus actually raise Lazarus from the dead. They don't believe in Jesus. They decide they want him killed. Looking for the miraculous to convince that Jesus loves you, that he's on your side despite the situation and, just, and desperately wants you in his family, despite anything and everything you've done against him. If the good news isn't good enough for you, Miracles won't convince you either. It will not produce faith. How do we produce faith? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We see that in Romans 10, 17. We come to faith because we hear the gospel of Christ, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, what the prophets and Moses wrote about that would have given those five brothers a chance for faith in what we are speaking about today. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, they will not perish, they will not die, but have eternal life. So what is hearing? It's not just our ears recognizing the word and sentence structure of what I just said, but our hearts and our minds receiving it like very dry ground when you pour water on it and you see it just soak up that water like it's being refreshed and revived. That is hearing 
the gospel. What is faith then? If hearing that, what is faith? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is evidence of things we cannot see. Faith is that activator for, for us, for who we are and what we do. Faith isn't just mental acknowledgement of a truth. You say, oh, I'm a, I have faith, brother. I'm a believer. I have faith in Jesus. But then not do anything about it. Not live your life like your faith depends on it. Faith is action based on that truth. It is I was lost, but I am, now I'm found. I was broken, but now I'm whole. I was alone, but now I have Jesus. It's living out truthfully. Because he loves me, I love you. Because he saw me, I see you. Because he gave up everything for me to save me, he gave everything in heaven to save me. I give up everything on earth to serve him. Which means I use my wealth and my health to declare the word of Christ so that someone, anyone may hear it and by hearing it, have faith. What a rich parable this is. So much more than if you got money now, that's all you get because you have Hades afterwards. If you're poor now, don't worry because you're going to have something later. God's going to reward you for being poor. It's so much more than something simple like that. What a rich parable we have. When it comes to wealth and poverty, how do you view poverty, wealth, and the gospel? Maybe you've leaned towards a prosperity gospel, that wealth is a sign of blessing, that if you pursue God, then material blessing will follow as he is blessing your life. Or maybe you look down on wealth, seeing it as evil because it's represented oppression in your life. Do you need to align yourself to, in your finances to biblical values today? Do you need to live more generously today? In Luke 14, 12 to 14, again, just before, to the same people that are, are, the parable was read to, Jesus said this to his host. When you give a luncheon or dinner or banquet like that rich man, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Wealth is not evil. It's what we do with wealth that can create the problems in our life. There's some people that God has gifted the ability to make money. But there's a purpose why he's gifted them with that ability. And it's not just so that they can have jet skis and cottages and do all this and never share their wealth. It's for their wealth to be used for God's purposes. You can still have the jet skis and the cottage and, the, and everything like that, but if you're the only one that ever uses them and appreciates them, maybe you need to invite some different people to your to your house. Maybe you need to dine with some different people. I speak this to myself, not, not just to you. I'm, again, not the preacher saying wealth or hell. It's not the situation. There's implications for us. 
but I don't want you to think I'm just coming down judging you. We need to have a, a healthy view, a biblical view of wealth and poverty and our role in that. And faith and works is another thing that we can see in this story. How do you see your faith today? If faith comes from hearing, have you heard the word from Jesus Christ today? How does your faith influence your lifestyle? Maybe today, if we read James 2.17, that assertion that faith without works is dead. If you pause, does that scare you? Do you sit here wondering if, Is my faith active? Do I live out a life that honors God? And I don't just mean like your tongue's pretty clean. You don't, you know, you don't cuss and swear, or at least not in in public and around people. And, you know, you generally live a good life. There's lots of good people out there. I'm talking about, does Jesus have sovereignty over every area of your life? Or maybe you've been working so hard for a faith that you can't earn or ever be good enough for. But Jesus is offering it to you freely. How do you view faith and works in your life? There's the gospel and signs and wonders that we can see in this story. And as a church, we fully believe that God still moves like he did in the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Bible. We believe that the Holy Spirit still works in us to glorify God through spiritual gifts. Yet we don't seek those signs and wonders for sensational reasons. We don't seek them so we can grow crowds. Instead, we actively put our faith on the line in obedience to God so that he can do what only he can do in those moments. And we get no credit for us. Do you want to see God move? Then receive the gift that he has for you. And then in maturity, obey God as he puts you in positions to use that gift. No matter the social consequences of doing so or the risk of failure. Every single one of us has a gift from God to use for this community, for Cornwall, for SDG. You have a gift that God wants to use. We all do. Are we using it? Are we afraid to use it? Do we obey God when he nudges us and says, there's somebody to pray for because they need healing? And we go, oh, I can't do that. If I go pray for them and they don't get healed, then their faith is shattered and my faith is shattered. So it's better that I just don't do that so that nobody's faith is shattered or nobody's faith is even used. When you love people, rather than care about your reputation, you can expect the impossible. We also see eternity in this story. This parable ends with a sober recognition that eternity rests in the balance of our hearing the good news of Jesus and receiving it in faith. This morning, I would be negligent if I didn't ask you today, do you have ears to hear? God loves us, rebellious and lost and broken as we are and we may be. He says, come, come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest.
today, do you need to respond to his call to you? As we close in prayer, I'd invite you, just everyone in the room, if we can just all just close our eyes for a moment so we can focus on nothing else than what God may be speaking to our hearts. And this morning, I just want to make an invitation. If there's anyone here today that you need to take a step of faith, you've heard the gospel proclaimed, you've heard the good news of Jesus today, and you have yet to say, yes, Jesus, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I want to be a part of your family. You may not solve every problem I have immediately, but I know that with you by my side, I can face anything that you will give me rest. If today you want to receive that gospel today, I just invite you right now while everybody's eyes are closed, no one's looking around at you, to take one step of faith and just raise your hand and say, I I want that faith. If that's you today right now, just raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, I see those hands. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you so much for taking that step to say, Jesus, I need you. I don't want an empty faith. I don't want to just know that there's a God. I want to know that God. So today, this morning, we just pray for you right now. God, we are all sinners. We are, in our own devices, we are lost. If we just do things on our own, we're lost and broken. But you came for us. You loved us so much that you came to rescue us. And so, God, we ask you to forgive us of our sins, forgive us of trying to do things on our own and not hear you and listen to you and follow you. And so for all those who raised their hand and said, God, I need to take that step to follow you, God, we pray that right now they would experience your forgiveness, they would experience your love so deeply. They would be able to receive in faith the gospel of who you are that changes them and renews them. Just like I've experienced and so many here have experienced. God, we just thank you for that bold step they took to say, I want Jesus. God, we commit to walking with them to learn and grow and develop into Christians of faith that walk in faith and be able to share that good news with others. God, for the rest of us as we walk, God, may you again today just tweak our hearts where we need to be tweaked when it comes to our view of eternity and the gospel or signs and wonders, faith and works, wealth and poverty. God, align us to your will and to your ways. May we not let the world or, or bad teaching lead us astray from what you want us to know about who you are, about this life we have here on earth and the life to come. God, thank you again for this parable, for the truth that's revealed to us today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.